Uh, If you uh, have your Bible this morning, I would encourage you to turn once again over to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you don't have your Bible, you can find this printed in the bulletin. Uh, We just have a few more weeks, just a couple after this, uh, left in Hebrews chapter 11. It's been a fun journey, I think, through this uh, family uh, photo album of the people of God. Uh, I've been steering away from calling it the Hall of Faith, which is the normal title that people give to it, because that reminds me of like going to the Football Hall of Fame, for example, in Canton, Ohio. And if I went through there and looked at the pictures of those men, uh, I would not be able to imitate those men. I would not be able to become them in any sense of the word because they got things that I don't got. They, they got size and skills and all kinds of stuff that I, just, I wasn't gifted. Uh, this is not like that. This is more like a family photo album where we can relate to these folks. We can actually and we should actually imitate them. Because what made them strong wasn't something about them. It was their faith in God's strength, right? And so today we're going to look at another one of those uh, listed at the end of the passage. We're going to look today at Barak, uh, which is one that you maybe have never heard a sermon about Barak before. We read his story a moment ago, and now let me read the summary here in verses 32 to 40. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. None of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is God's word once again, this beautiful ending passage. Barak, if we could summarize his story, we would probably pull out the phrase there in verse 34. If you look at that phrase where it says, they became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. That's kind of a nice little summary of what Barak was called by God to do and what he actually did by faith. We read about it earlier in the Old Testament lesson. Now, have you ever been asked to do something you didn't want to do in your life? Has that ever happened to you? Levi is already raising his hand there. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty much all the kids probably raise their hand, and, and most of us adults. It still happens to us, right? That people give us an assignment or tell us to do something. Man, we don't really want to do it. We don't feel like we can do it um, at all. Well, I think that's probably a little bit of what Barack felt. Uh, he lived during a very dark time. We'll talk about that in a moment. He was asked to do an awesome task that seemed to make absolutely no sense. And yet, by faith, Barak shows us that even though obedience to God is hard, it's made possible by the secret power, the secret sauce of faith 
There's something about faith in us when it's attached to Jesus, when it's attached to God and his superior strength that can help us get through even difficult assignments. I think it'll be encouraging for us to take a look at the story in three ways, if you look at your bulletin. Uh, first, I simply want to ask the question, why is obeying God so costly so often? Why, why, does, it, why does it hurt? Why, why is it too difficult so many times in our lives? And then secondly, how does faith help us make sense of it? Because sometimes when God tells us to do something, it doesn't even make sense. How does faith help that come together and then lastly how does faith help us become willing to do things that even are hard for the Lord so why is it costly how does faith make sense of it and how does faith turn us into willing servants of God first of all why is obedience costly Uh, don't you know that to be a Christian is by definition to be someone who's called by God isn't that right it's probably the base level the most foundational way that you could describe a Christian believer Uh, We don't believe as Christians that we're just thrown into the world at random to sort of choose our own adventure or work our way through life by our own, you know, strength, skills, and reason. Uh, No, our, our life is directed by a word that comes from God. And that word covers everything, literally everything. It's a comprehensive calling. It covers all aspects of our life. And instead of being thrown into the world, we're sent into the world on a very, very specific mission. Well, if you know that's true, if you know that's true, then you also probably know that the call of God is almost never tailored to our comfort or to our abilities, right? Almost never tailored. In fact, God has this funny way of acting and funny way of of working, which is only funny to us because we expect him to be like us and not just as he alone is. God never limits himself in his commanding by our own limitations, He just doesn't do it. Uh, God does not limit his calling to our tastes or our pleasures or our preferences. God just simply calls what he wants to call us to do for his own reasons, some of which he gives us, some of which he don't, but he gives the calling just as surely as the sun rises in the morning. It's right there as big as the sun shining in the sky, and it's up to us to figure out are we going to listen to God's call or are we not? Are we going to go life our way? Or life God's way. Barak is a great example of this. Uh, Israel was in a very dark time when Barak lived. It tells us in Judges chapter 4 that the Israelites had done evil in the eyes of God. And just like we saw last week with Gideon, God had sold them into the hands of their enemies because of their disobedience. This time it was the Canaanites, King Jabin. And he had a commander over his army named Sisera. And it says Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, Uh, which is to say, we might say today, he was nuclear capable. Uh, He had all the bells and whistles of of an army of the time. In fact, archaeologists and historians call this time period the Iron Age. Have you ever heard that? It's the Iron Age. And that meant iron was the currency of power at the time. For an army to have 900 chariots of iron meant they had not only the currency of power, but they had several times over more horses to run those chariots. And they had even more than that, several times over more men to man the chariots. This was the biggest army that the Israelites knew about on the face of the earth. There may have been bigger ones, but they didn't know about them. This was the threat. And Sisera took all that power and he applied it to what it says, oppressing Israel cruelly. 
oppressing them cruelly. What happens to the human heart when it gets oppressed? What happens to the human heart when it gets oppressed? It withers. Oppression, especially you know, over a long period of time, can actually crush the spirit and crush the soul. I mean, eventually you kind of lose the will to live. Isn't that right? You certainly lose the, the will, if not to live, the will to fight back. And that's what happened. Israel was in a slump, but yet God was still at work. He raises up this woman, Deborah. She's a prophetess, meaning she's a prophet, a woman prophet who's received God's word. And she, it seems like she's the only one left in Israel who speaks the word of God. And she sets up shop by a palm tree where all of Israel comes out to receive warning and commandment and encouragement from her, from the Lord. And one day she's told by God, call in this guy Barak. We don't know anything about Barak beyond this. He just comes out of nowhere. He's a nobody. And yet God says, summon Barak and tell him, give him an assignment. And here's the assignment. It's almost funny, actually, to say it out loud. Hey, Barak, here's what God wants you to do. Go find 10,000 of your closest friends. 10,000 men. I mean, first of all, let's just stop there. Where are you going to go out? Where are you going to? Who in here? Let's just stop. Who in here? would be willing or able to muster 10,000 people at your beck and call? I think no one, right? In fact, I don't think Barack was capable of this. I don't think anybody on earth was capable of this. And yet, that did not stop God from giving the call or command, because this is the way God does. It's what God wanted to do to glorify his name, and so he gave, gives Barack this commandment. Muster 10,000 of your closest friends. Oh, by the way, climb up a thousand-foot-tall mountain with those 10,000 people, and wait there like, a, like fish in a barrel while I bring the most powerful man with his 900 chariots of iron to the foot of that mountain, and then I'm going to call you to go down into the valley and face him in battle. There you go, Barack. Just a little assignment for you. Can you imagine? I think there's a, an amazing lesson in Barack's example. An amazing lesson. God always commands on the basis of his holy character and his almighty power rather than commanding us based on our limitations and our character and our ability to desire or not to desire what God brings. We can't choose what God brings. We can't choose what's in his word. We can't choose what his Holy Spirit speaks to us from his word or what circumstances God calls us into to obey that word. We can't choose any of that. God brings it. Just as sure as the sunrise. And that sunrise is not set to our timetable. And it's not set to our desire for it to stay night or not. <laughs> right? This is what Barak teaches us. Now you might say, well, okay. How is God fair if he's calling Barak to do something he could never do? How is it right to ask somebody to do something they don't even want to do? I mean, this is so against the way we think in our culture. That we should only be asked to do what we wanted to do already because of freedom and all that stuff, uh, and, and that to be asked to do something that, that we're incapable of doing is cruel. Well, think about it for a minute. If you're a parent, or if you've ever been a parent, you know this is actually a parenting strategy. <laughs> Isn't it? it? It's parenting 101. To ask your kids all the time to do something that's just a little bit more than they think they can do. Well, why do you do that? So that they would reach beyond their grasp, so that they would grow up, so that they would mature. If you only asked them to do the things that they thought they could do, you wouldn't be asking them to do much, right? 
you got to train them into that. I mean, this is the way it goes at my house, and probably your house has this. This is like the liturgy of the household. Kids, clean your room. Congregational response. I can't. I'm not capable of doing it. Or it's already clean. And then you go in there, and there's, you're sure there's animals that have taken up residence, <laughs> wild animals that have come in. Isn't that the way it is? I can't do it. It's too hard. Won't you help me do it? Won't you do it for me? I'm sure your kids never say that, right? <laughs> and yet, we, that doesn't stop us from giving the command. Or at least it shouldn't. Add to that. Sometimes we might even ask our three-year-old Xander to go clean his room. And now we know, we know Xander can't do that. He's incapable. And so what we mean when we call him to do it is, I'm going to go in, Stacy's going to go in with you, and we're going to show you how to clean. And you're basically just going to tag along. But we're saying you're, you're called to clean your room so that you'll learn that one day soon you will clean your room. Or Stacy may say to Xander, will you help me cook dinner? And pull the, the, the uh, stool up to the stove or the counter and put Xander on it and help, you know, Xander will help cut the carrots or whatever. And we all know that that call means and, and, it, and with that call comes a commitment for us to actually be the ones present to do the work. And yet we still give the call. God does the same to Barack. What God is calling Barack to do, of course, Barack can't do. Barack knows it. Deborah knows it. Everybody knows it. Anybody who doesn't know it is just self-deceived by, you know, pride. <laughs> that, that's it. And yet, God never calls us to do anything that he's not willing to go with us and do with us and to operate in us. God never calls us to do anything that he in his holy character is not already doing for you. When God calls you to love, God is love. When he calls you to make peace with that person that you don't get along with, God made peace with you when you didn't get along with him. The measure is not our limitations or preferences. It's God's character and God's ability and God's purposes. And that's good news, y'all. But it also means that a common experience of the Christian life is to feel weak, like we said last week, and to feel completely in over your head, maybe even like God's calling doesn't make any sense to you. Just think about a few examples of this. Do you know the Bible tells you as a Christian you should be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you at any time? You know that? That's a commandment in uh, 1 Peter. And what that means is a couple things. One, you've got to live with such hope that people will actually ask you, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? <laughs> and don't you know how hard that is? To display hope in a hopeless world? To display hope in a depressed world? I mean, isn't that the world that we're living in right at the moment? Uh, think about the, the way conversations go at work, wherever you work. Isn't it mostly complaint? Isn't it mostly jealousy and envy and slander and gossip and griping and all that? That's the common language, right, of the human heart. To speak words of hope is going to make you stick out like a sore thumb. People might not even like you very much. But they may, they may just may ask, like God says, oh, will you tell me, though, how you're able to look so positively at the world? And, and then you're supposed to be ready to actually talk about Jesus. Jesus. The J word. That's hard to do, isn't it? That's going to make you stick out like even more of a sore thumb, and it may actually even cost you friendships at times. It may cost you positions at times, and yet that doesn't stop God from saying, every time you're asked, give a reason for the hope that's in you. Same thing is true of God's call to not lie. 
Sometimes it's convenient to tell the truth. Sometimes it's inconvenient to tell the truth. Both times God tells you to tell the truth. Sometimes it seems like a lie is an ever-present help in time of trouble. <laughs> like it is the only thing that's going to get me out of this bind. And yet God tells me to tell the truth in that situation just as much as he does when it's to my advantage to tell the truth. Our ability, our circumstance doesn't cause the, the, the call of the command to change. God's commands and calls stay the same. And so where in your life this morning are you experiencing the costliness of the call? Where is it? Maybe you want to ride a couple places down, maybe even. Places you're experiencing the cost. If you're not experiencing the cost, maybe ask yourself this question. Am I simply giving God lip service in my life? Am I like the kid in Jesus' parable who said to his dad, Yes, sir, I'll do what you tell me to do, and then he goes away and doesn't do it? Is that what you're doing? Are you saying, God, I'll obey, but then you're not really trying to obey? Because when we actually try to obey, like Barak does, we're going to feel, wow, God is asking me to do something far above my pay grade, far above my abilities. That's the first thing. But secondly, faith begins to help. Faith actually transforms. And the first way it does is it helps us to make sense even when the call to obedience does not make sense. Now look... Um, Look, for example, at the Hebrews passage, again in verse 34. Look at what it says about Barak. He became powerful in battle. He became powerful in battle. What does that say about Barak? He wasn't powerful, right? But he, over time, somehow there was a process in which he became powerful. And what this passage is saying is it was faith that was central to that process to help him go from reluctant to humbly obedient. Now, if you look back at the Judges passage, Judges chapter 4, it's printed for you there in the bulletin, you'll see, you know, uh, Barak has this back and forth with Deborah after he call, or she calls him into this crazy act of obedience. And often, this is the way I've understood this story up until this week. And I actually changed my view of the story this week. So I'll try it out on you and see what you think. Uh, all my life, I thought that this story about Barak meant that Barak was this scaredy cat. He was a coward. Uh, a woman, Deborah, prophetess, said, do this for God. And he says, I won't do it unless you go with me. So there it is. Here's a man who needs a woman to be by him in order to do what God tells him to do. He's a weak man. And then when he gets the 10,000 people, which we tend to overlook that he actually went and got 10,000 people and climbed a mountain. More on that in a minute. When he gets to the top of the mountain, he does not move, it says, until Deborah says to him, up. Go, it's time. Is this not the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands? Don't you see it? Go down. And so there it is again. There's another example, right, of a weak man waiting to be commanded by the prophetess. I've revised my view this week because I paid more careful attention, I think, to what it is that Barak actually says to Deborah. And I want you to look at it. Uh, in the Judges passage, look, for example... Uh, at verse <clears throat> 8. That's the first place. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Is that cowardice or is it humility? I actually think humility. 
Barak understood something that everybody in Israel understood because everybody was going out to Deborah at the palm tree to get the word of the Lord from her because she understood that the word of the Lord, at least during this time, was coming through this woman. God was speaking through this woman. And in fact, it seems like God was speaking through nobody else in Israel except this woman. And so for Barak to say, I'll do what God says, but you, O woman of God, you, bearer of the word of God, you got to come with me. Because I ain't trying nothing that God tells me to do if God doesn't go with me. And if God's instructions are not close at hand at every step along the way. I think maybe, maybe, just maybe, Barak is more humble than he is reluctant. Same thing when he's up on the mountain. He goes to the top of the mountain and, you know, Barak could have tried to put together everything by his common sense. He could have looked down and seen, you know, he could have saw the... The, the chariots coming forward and seeing when the right moment of time was for him to come down the mountain with his troops. And yet it says, down in verse 14, that's not what he did. Instead, he waited for the word of the Lord to come. And when God said through Deborah, remember Deborah is not just a you know, private person speaking for herself. She's speaking for God. And when Deborah said, up, my man got up. When Deborah said, for this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hand, Barak believed it. And he believed it so much that the Lord was going before him. He believed it so strongly that he was willing to go face the most powerful military leader that the world knew in that moment. What do we see in Barak? I think we see this. Whether, whether you want to still read it, maybe I didn't convince you. Maybe you still see him as scaredy cat, cat Barak. That's fine. I think the point's still the same. Obedience to God will not make sense to you ever until you start listening to God first in your life. That's the point. If you don't learn how to listen to God first, and by first I don't just mean first in order, I mean first in importance, first in priority. If you don't start prioritizing the voice of God, other voices are going to drown out your ability to make sense of what God's telling you to do. Learning how to obey God is a little bit like learning a foreign language, is what I'm saying. Uh, if you've ever tried to learn a foreign language, you know, high school Spanish, what did that take? Did that come naturally? The exact opposite, right? Because this is the way humans work. Everybody has a native language, a mother tongue, and once that mother tongue or native language is set, it's extremely hard to build another one over on top of it. It's very hard. It takes a lot of work and a lot of upkeep over years to do so. Well, the Bible says, actually, that's the way we are in sin. Sin basically is a, another native tongue that the human race has adopted as their own since Adam and Eve. That native tongue is disobedience, rebellion, selfishness, self-righteousness. That's what I speak from the core of my heart, just as a natural person without Jesus. The call of the gospel, what, what Jesus is coming into this world to do is not just to give us forgiveness but to forgive us and give us the Holy Spirit to train us in a new language. And that language is definitely foreign to us. It's the language of obedience, of humility, of submission, all of which we're allergic to apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Barak learned this very, very important lesson to, to let God speak first in his heart. He knew that he needed regular practice, and so he went to Deborah. He waited on the word. He waited for God to speak. We need to do the same thing. Even once you learn a foreign language, if you don't use it for a long time, what will happen? You don't use it, you lose it, they say. And it's actually very, very true. You lose big gaps 
in your understanding, which you used to have. And sometimes, sometimes, y'all, even as Christians, we believe the call of God and the word of God seems like a foreign tongue. It's like God speaking Russian to us. And the reason is, is we have, we have made ourselves strangers to the Lord's voice. Because instead of reaching for the scriptures, instead of asking the Holy Spirit to speak, we have instead just simply picked up our phones, turned on the TV, right? Listen to the influencers or whatever you happen to listen to. Listen to the commentators on the news. Uh, Listen to the people at work. Joined in the same kind of complaint and all that garbage, you know, that we're always hearing. And that comes out of us naturally too. It's not just they're bad, we're good. It's come out of us too. But instead of putting aside that old native language and picking up the new one by picking up the scripture, we just hum along with it and harmonize along with it. And then, before we know it, God comes to us and says, hey, don't lie. And we think, that's Greek to me, because a lie would really come in handy right about now. He says, don't get in bed with that person. We think, well, I kind of want to. That That sounds like Russian to me, what you're telling me to do, God. That's the way it works, slowly but surely. Uh, there's a, a great, I think, uh, a great little uh, advice that I read. I didn't read this whole book, but I, I gleaned this little piece of advice from it that says you should always go Scripture before phone every day. Scripture before phone. And, you know, like any little rule, it, you can overdo that and maybe get too legalistic about it. But I, but I want to tell you, there's something wise about that statement. That the first thing we do in the morning maybe shouldn't be jumping right into the stream of the native language of rebellion and sin. We'll get there. I mean, trust me, you can't avoid getting into that stream because it's just in you and around you all the time. You can't get away from it. But it'll, it'll be there when we get there. Let's first reach for Scripture. And let's humbly ask the Lord to speak. Just like Barak said to Deborah, I won't go anywhere today, Lord. I ain't going nowhere unless you go with me. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. That's a, that's a radical way to live. That's the only way that God doesn't become a stranger to us. I think in our particular culture here in Polk County and in Mulberry, it's more likely that we'll, we'll, we'll make these mistakes by, you know, because what I'm trying to say is sometimes people have an intellectual problem with the faith. Like, for example, I, I don't think I need to obey God because, well, God might not be real because science says, you know, that we don't need God to explain the world. That's like an intellectual, philosophical way to doubt God. And plenty of people have that, and that may be you, because plenty of people have that around here. But more typical of us in Polk County is that we put common sense over God, right? Because common sense is a great thing. Common sense is very important. But sometimes common sense can actually drown out the voice of God, like in the examples I just gave. Sometimes it makes much more common sense to tell that little lie because it might, you know, to tell the truth might mean you lose your job. And, man, I can't lose my job because I have, to, I have to pay the bills. I have to put food on the table. It doesn't make common sense. So common sense is I tell the white lie and ask for forgiveness later. But what we've done there, do you see what we've done there? We've elevated our common sense over God's good sense, which he has graciously revealed to us in Scripture. That's the the second thing this morning. Faith can actually open up how God's call of obedience makes sense, even when it doesn't seem to at first glance or even second glance. But lastly this morning, faith is able to truly transform you 
by giving you a willingness to obey God. And this is the part where we tend to stumble. Even when we get to the point where God's will seems to make sense and we want to do it, we still lack sort of motivation because it's so hard. Well, don't you think Barak had that struggle? I mean, God was telling him to do an incredible thing. I mean, something that would have cost him dearly. Uh, it, it was risking his own neck, risking his own life. And yet Barak went out and did it. Why did he do it? I want to show you in the passage. If you look at the Judges passage, this is how he became strong. Look at verse 9. I think verse 9 of chapter 4 in Judges is the hinge of the whole story. This is what makes the story pop and the lesson that we can learn from it. Look at what Deborah says. If I can find verse 9. Here it is. And she said to him, I will surely go with you. Barak said, I won't go unless you go. She says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless. Are you following? The road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Barak, I'm going to go with you. God's going to go with you. The word of the Lord is going to go with you in this act of obedience God's calling you to do, but don't get it twisted. The end of the road, the end, the end game here is not Barak's glory. The end game is not Barak's honor, Barak's comfort, Barak's pleasure. The end game is nothing less than to show that God is glorious and God is strong. God is going to work a victory through you that everybody's going to know. God must have done it because that's the only way it could have gotten done. You can't live in both of those camps. You can't live wanting people to walk away from your life thinking, man, what an amazing woman that is. What an outstanding man that is. And at the same time wanting to live in such a way that they say, what an awesome God that must be. It's really hard to have it both ways. Really hard. It's just the way God calls us into situations that just prevent that from happening. He calls us to wade into the deep end before we can swim. Because just like us with our kids, he's willing to be right there alongside of us, swimming for us while we can't swim, and then teaching us step by step to, to reach beyond our grasp and to grow in maturity so that we can. That's what God always does. God is working in your life to give himself the glory, not you. And this is the law of obedience. This is the thing actually that can transform your heart to make you want to obey the Lord. You've got to realize there are two ways of obeying God. Two ways, and they're very, very different. Even though they may look the same. You may have two people in church or two people in the world that are really good people. They're very generous. They do everything right. They don't cuss. They don't, you know, all those things you know, that we put up as, as rules. They are the picture-perfect example of good morals, and yet they have it for two different reasons. On the one hand, there's a way of obeying God which says, God, I know my life's been a mess because I've made so many bad decisions. I want to fix my life up so that finally I'll start having bad luck, bad karma, and start having good luck and good karma. I want you to bless me, and so I'm going to do X, Y, and Z so that you bless me, so that my life gets easier, so I don't have to live in misery anymore. That's one way of obeying God. It'll actually help you. It probably will make you a more moral person if you think that way. But what it won't do, here's the Bible's warning, it will not give you a relationship with God. It's an obedience without relationship. The Bible calls it obedience by works. And the only place that leads is the same place that disobedience by work leads. 
the judgment of God, hell itself. There's no way around it. But there is another way to obey God. And it may look outwardly just like the other one, but it's so different. Because here it is. I want to obey God not because it lifts me up. Not because it makes my life more comfortable. Not because I get the glory and everybody's going to say, oh, wow, what an amazing person that is. I want to obey God because I know when God's people obey him, God gets praised. God gets glorified and lifted up. That's why it says in, in, in Judges chapter 5, the next chapter, that on the day, this is a literal quote, on the day when God delivered Sisera into Barak's hands, Deborah and Barak together sang out. And here's what they sang. When the princes of Israel obey God and the people of Israel offer themselves willingly, dash, praise the Lord. Do you see that? Do you see where the road leads of obedience? Uh, he told, I mean, she told Barak, the road will not lead to your glory, but here's where it'll lead. Praise the Lord. When God, the leaders of God's people obey him and lead the people well, and when the people offer themselves willing to God, willingly and freely, guess what happens? God gets glorified. And that should be, at the end of the day, enough. That should be enough reason. I've said this in so many different ways, but I'm going to say it again. If you go to church for any other reason except God, you won't go long. If you tell the truth for any other reason except God's glory, just because he's glorified when we tell the truth, you will not tell the truth very long. Right? Uh, if you treat your neighbor with respect just for any other reason except God made him in his image and it glorifies him to treat people in his image well, you won't treat him well very long. All the other reasons we give for obeying God are going to go up and they're going to go down. They're going to go up, they're going to go down. They're going to come and they're going to go. Here today, gone tomorrow. The glory of God never fades, not one bit. Not one bit. You can pursue the glory of God and the pleasure of God to kingdom come, literally. <laughs> and it will never run out, not a drop. Is that transforming or what? For in our hearts, no longer to be a, a self-interest. I'm going to obey you to fix my life so that you'll have to bless me, God. I'm going to strike a deal with you in the short term. Instead of that, in the place of that comes, oh God, you have loved me so much through your son. You've given me so much. The beauty of your glory is more than my words can express. And the best thing that I could do with my little life on this little time that you've given me on this little planet is that at the end of my life, my voice might be joined with the voice of all the saints. That my voice might be joined with the voices of all creation, with the angels saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That's the reason. There's a great movie. It's an old one, but I encourage you to watch it. It's called Chariots of Fire. It's about it's a true story about a man named Eric Little. Uh, he was a British, a Scottish guy, actually, but he, he ran a track for the, the British team in the Olympics. He was a very devout Christian. He was a Presbyterian, in fact, if I might add that in. And he was, he was very devoted to his faith and to Jesus. And this one time, this is a true story, during the Olympics, the, the event that he normally ran in was going to run on Sunday, on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. And he refused to run because he believed that was a violation of the Sabbath. It's a whole other sermon. Don't worry about that for right now. It's a whole other sermon. But he refused to, do, to run because of the Sabbath command. And so they had to switch him from his favorite event to another event that he didn't run as well. 
and yet he did it. He ran the event, and famously, he won the gold medal in that event. He won the gold medal in the Olympics in that event. And somebody, people were amazed at him. I mean, he was like an, they thought he was an alien just because of, can you imagine making that decision, a famous athlete saying, I'm not going to play today because it's Sunday. I mean, that would be shocking. Everybody would be making fun of him. And yet one interviewer asked him, why do you run? And this is in the movie. He says, you know, this is why I run. Because God made me fast. And when I run, I can feel his pleasure. I want you to know, that's what Barack did. And I want you to know, that's the only way that you and I are going to become all around obedient for the Lord, even in the smallest measure. is because we say, I'm going to do this because God made me for it. And because I feel God's pleasure when it gets done. Amen? Let's pray this morning.